0: It's Monday, May 27th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 209 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You alright? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today... Today, that musician happens to be probably the most important musician in my lifetime. The musician who has influenced and affected me more than anyone I've ever heard. Today, a conversation between myself and saxophonist Evan Parker. Let's have a listen. As anyone who knows me well can tell you, the solo music of Evan Parker is among the most important music of my life, and I couldn't be happier, couldn't be, couldn't feel more honored to be able to present to you today my conversation with Evan Parker. I need to get better about um, mentioning my gigs on here. You know, today's a conversation with an improviser with a capital I who means the world to me. And just this past Friday, I played a show in Brooklyn with another improviser with a capital I who were, who means the world to me, Joe Morris. It was fucking great. We recorded it. It was a trio with uh, Yasmin Azaiz. And I want to say thanks to everyone who came out. I, but I need to get better about about mentioning the gigs on here. Like, if, if there's a benefit in this for me of doing these shows every week, like, I, I should be publicizing. So, I promise to get better about that. I do have a show coming up on June 5th at Muchmore's in Brooklyn, a new quartet. Me, Henry Fraser on bass, John McCowan on clarinet, Chris Hoffman on cello. That is happening June 5th at Muchmore's on a bill with some pretty incredible music. It would be great to see you out. These uh, uh, John and and Henry are, I believe, pretty incredible young musicians, and I'm excited to be able to get into it with them. If you're enjoying this show, and I hope you are, please consider becoming a Patreon donor. How do you do that? You go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast, and for like five bucks a month, you could be of huge help to this show. This is a listener-supported show. The only funding that comes in is through the Patreon. That's it. Nothing outside of that. No grants. There's one person working on this show. That's me. I literally do everything. And any funding that comes in through the Patreon goes directly to help sustaining the show. So if you're enjoying this show and you want to show some appreciation, please do that. Alright. Today on the show... As I mentioned up top, the musician who, in my world, and I'll explain this to you, I'll draw this out a little bit, in my world of of, of listening and playing, the musician who ultimately, at the end of the day, I sort of continually cross-reference for the point of, of, of quality control, of philosophical rightness, the musician who has whose work has shaped my thinking in the most profound way, Evan Parker. I've gotten to know Evan pretty well in the last uh, 10 years or so. We've played some shows. We made a record. We've had a, we had for a while a nice correspondence of, of, of sending objects back and forth to each other. And Getting to know Evan has been one of the great joys in my life. But I want to I take things back for a second because I, I got an email from someone the other day, someone who I knew many, many years ago, who was just writing to check in. We hadn't spoken in probably damn near 20 years. And this person reached out. His name is Marshall. Uh, just to check in and say, hey, I've really been enjoying the podcast. I hope you're doing well. But Marshall was instrumental in a particular night of music in my life. For those of you that have been listening to this show for for a long time, you might remember episode 39 of this podcast. Episode 39, which was the last episode of 2013, was devoted to an old friend of mine called Craig Liskey. Craig Liskey was someone I knew when I lived in Athens, Georgia. He literally introduced the idea of free improvisation to me. He was the first person I ever improvised with. He was an incredibly crucial person in my life. For any of you who are listening, who, who know Athens, Georgia, or who, who live in Athens, Georgia, there's two venues very close to one another. There's the Flickr Theater, where I used to do a lot of shows. It's a small bar with a back room where they, they host all kinds of interesting music. It's a small performance space. probably holds, I don't know, 25, 30 people. A couple doors down is the 40 Watt, the legendary rock club where R.E.M., among many other bands, kind of got their thing together. 40 Watt probably holds 800 people, 900 people. Craig was the manager at the 40 Watt. And one night back in 2000, maybe 2001, I was walking down the street. I was going to the 40 watt to see the Melvins, a band who still, you know, among my very, very favorites. And Craig is out on the street. He stops me. He says, what are you doing? Like there's an, there's a very important show happening at Flickr in like just about an hour. It's a guy called Evan Parker. He's playing solo. I never heard of Evan. I had no idea about the world uh, from which he came from the world of, of, of European free improvisation. And literally, in that very moment of walking down the street, running into a friend, and turning left into this club, I heard the music that was going to change my life forever. I heard Evan Parker play solo saxophone. After hearing Evan play, I, w- I then went and listened to the Melfins. And I would argue, I think I know myself pretty well. But I think the entire nexus of what I do and care about musically exist right at that crossroads. The Melvins and Evan Parker. For those of you that don't know Evan, uh, and for listeners of this show, I, I, I imagine there's not that many of you. Evan has literally rewritten the language of the saxophone. For the past 50 plus years, whether it's playing solo or with the trio with Barry Guy and Paul Lytton, or the trio with Alex von Schlippenbach and Paul Lovins. Evan has been codifying a language, an improvisational language, an instrumental language that is so uniquely his own that it really has thrown a gauntlet down for other improvisers like myself. Anytime I do one of these talks, I'm sort of torn between being an interviewer and asking for biographical information. And being a fellow musician. And, and, and cracking it open and, and, and getting into it. Certainly the latter is which I prefer. Especially with someone like Evan who I've known for years and years. And I think that's what today is. I do ask for a bit of forgiveness up top up top, I I do think you'll hear a conversation where I was a little uncomfortable. Like I said, I've known Evan for years. But I don't always know how to navigate these conversations. And there's a part of me that always feels like it's important to establish and and open up certain aspects of biographical information. And I think you'll hear, like, 25-30 minutes into the conversation with Evan today, you'll hear where it opens up and we start having a real conversation. That's definitely part of today's show. One more thing is I do misspeak pretty early on in the show. I caught myself as it happened. Uh, Evan is referring to John Stevens, the drummer. And in my mind, I I, I was thinking of John Edwards, the bass player. So... When he mentions John Stevens, I mentioned the bass. So please don't get upset with me about that. All right. uh, Today's a good one. I'm excited to share it with you. Here is my conversation from two weeks ago with Evan Parker. Being able to hear him play live was, you know, a, one of the great moments of, of my life as a listener. Yeah. Um, and I actually always really enjoy those opportunities where you can hear someone who is navigating some some form of a challenge, whether it's, you know, do, having to reinvent yourself after M- being a yeah. musician for 70, 60 years, or yeah. Yeah. maybe a physical problem. Um. That's one of the I'm reasons. Not sure,
1: I know that that particular band. Or are, are there recordings of that?
0: I think there are. Okay. I, I haven't kept up that closely with it. Okay. Um, that's always been one, you know one of the reasons I, I know
1: love- the the road shows volume one, two, and three, which are the last things that I know about. And I guess there must be coffers full of uh, recordings still. Yeah. With potential. Yeah. So the, 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 that that's uh, that's what I uh, there's always something, always something. Any, any son I were on this uh, statement is going to contain something you've never heard before and mm-hmm. you don't expect.
0: From him specifically, yeah. Mean? Yeah. yeah,
1: specifically from him.
0: He's always, you know, he certainly has this reputation, but, you know, that's like a classic example of someone who's just been dedicated to the work mm. so, so fervently.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> he, I mean, one of the reasons I've always loved Chet Baker records and i mean i love his music for a variety of reasons but mm. knowing um how his life unfolded listening to the music parallel to that mm. he- hearing him deal with physical challenges deal mm. with you know mental challenges and mm. and to hear you know how people deal with that
1: yeah i've never faced those particular cha- challenges so
0: you you're in good shape <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's there's a story about um, somebody published something called the Book of Hip in London in the I guess it was in the nineties or maybe okay maybe in towards the end of the nineties I could be wrong about the date but they used for the cover a picture of uh, Chet in in his absolute prime when he was gorgeous yeah yeah and some. Ad agency got in touch with the publishers to say, um, who's that model on the, on the cover of the book? We need him for the next Levi's campaign. This is in the 90s? <laughs> and they, they said, you might want to... Tra- you know that photograph was taken some time ago. You m- might want to have a look <laughs> online. And I had the pleasure of being in a bar in um, somewhere in Belgium across the border from Aachen. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he had a lot of friends in in Belgium th- through that uh, that chemist guy, I've forgotten his name. Okay. But he he owned a um, a drugstore, as you would call it, would you? I think so. Drugstore, yeah, pharmacy, he, or, yeah. yeah, pharmacy. Yeah. But he was a, a saxophonist. Perhaps his name will come to me. He, he his daughter played drums. If that means anything, and she played on a Wayne Shorter record, I think. Oh. So, his name might come.
0: Not that guy, Tony.
1: No. Okay. I don't think so. Okay. And uh, it was, we, I was there with Schlippenbach and Lovens, and we, of course, we knew that's Chet Baker, you know. Yeah. We wanted to say something, but we couldn't bring ourselves to.
0: uh, He looked like he was.
1: Well, he looked like he was having private time, and we were. Yeah. We'd have been intruding on that, so we left him in peace. Yeah. Yeah. Although nobody is really upset if you just go up and say, "Mr. Baker, I l- love your work," or exactly, you know, keep it brief. And I've and, I've
0: never once uh, when I've when I've introduced myself to say, yeah, yeah. you know, thank you, you know, it's really meant a lot to me, and yeah, you know, yeah. that's it. keep it's, it it's an honor to meet you. Yeah. Um, I've never had anyone respond with anything but appreciation. Yeah, that's
1: right. That's I, right. I think we could have done it. We could have done it.
0: Yeah, we should have done it. Yeah, mm. yeah, maybe I don't know. So you, you grew up in Bristol? Yes, up
1: to the age of nine.
0: Where did you go from there?
1: From there I went to uh, the west suburbs of uh, London. Uh-huh. Or, well, very far suburbs by the airport, by Heathrow. Uh-huh. They were just building Heathrow at that point. Found my father's job was with what was then British Overseas Airways uh-huh. Corporation, and uh, they moved him up from Bristol to Heathrow. yeah. Bristol they,
0: was pretty devastated by the war, right? Uh,
1: not as much as some places. Yeah. No. That that whole story of the war was very interesting because they moved from, my parents were from Dover. Uh-huh. And when they realized I was, uh, that my mother was pregnant with me, they thought they they should move from Dover because the, the Germans were building a a gun which would fire, just about fire, all the way across the channel and hit Dover. So they thought, no, we'll move. And they moved to Southampton, which got bombed really badly. Yeah. Um, but he had a job there with uh, what became British Overseas Airways, it was called Imperial Airways at that point. hmm And they flew, the original commercial airlines flew from uh, flying boats. You know, the, they'd land on water. Really? Yeah yeah i can't i can't tell you which plane it was sure anything, but but uh, that, that was the origins of air travel and of course it was f- for the few sure very much for the few
0: sure i mean even in my lifetime i remember airlines as a child mm. being uh, a little more gussied up than yeah. they are now <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't quite like the greyhound that it is now <laughs> Cram them in. yeah
1: it's well even in the 60s my my, i remember my father saying the first time i flew he said well it's a shame because flying is not what it used to be
0: he was saying that then then yeah i mean being an airline pilot excuse me airline pilot then you were you were that was a a... he wasn't
1: a pilot no no he just worked in uh, management okay uh, stores management so i see yeah
0: but he probably had got to fly Or at least he didn't have
1: much interest in flying himself. No, it was interesting.
0: Huh.
1: And uh, also interesting that he just, I said, Well, I'd like to go to New York. I was 18. And he said, Okay. Do you you know where you're going to stay? And can you manage? You know, it was quite a liberal parent in in some ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In terms of being supportive of creative endeavor?
1: At that point, there was no clear sign of creative endeavor, I don't see. Well, you'd
0: already been playing the sax, right?
1: Yes, but that, as you know from your own parents, (laughs) that doesn't mean anything.
0: (laughs) They want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. Well, you, so, okay, let me me go back a second. Uh, I have to imagine um, hearing, like, who who were the first sax players you heard that you said, like, I have to try to do that?
1: The the very first jazz record I bought was Bird and Diz as as, as a 10-inch l p so uh, a great way to start but my my peer group made it the guys older than me made a decision that west Coast Chats was more interesting uh-huh at that point, and they you know for a while I was steered that way, and um, I knew all the bud shank records yeah and uh,
0: I love that stuff <laughs> yeah.
1: honestly well, it was you know howard rumsey's all lighthouse all stars yeah, yeah, that was. A detour for me in effect but once I decided wait a minute I can make up my own mind about what I listen to and I really like that Charlie Parker record I'm going to go back to the East Coast and see what yeah, what I've been missing and what I've been missing was uh, of course was Coltrane and
0: right, so we're talking everything.
1: 19 uh, what feeling that I was an independent uh, I had taste of my uh-huh. own which didn't depend on peer group approval yeah I would have been about seventeen or eighteen, I guess, maybe a little a little younger in some respect.
0: It's funny, like right now because it's 2019. There's been a lot of conversation about Mm. the year 1959 in jazz and all of like just the amount of tremendous records that came out. um, You know, whether it's you know kind of blue or. Shape of jazz to come or yeah. uh time out like seminal records, yes and would that does that period of time oh yeah
1: that's bang that's banging you've you've put a uh your finger right on the the point, I guess yeah, because I can remember when kind of blue was issued, I, certainly by the time time out came out, I think i was i moving on yeah it was kind of you can't you can't be listening to that and I'd made a choice, you know. Yeah. A, a switch from uh, what I suppose, loosely speaking, white jazz to black jazz. Right. That would be the simple way of thinking about
0: it. And were you thinking about it in those terms?
1: No, not in those terms. Just yeah. that, that it was the music that seemed to carry more power and more more resonance uh-huh. and um, just more
0: excitement. Maybe certainly. Yeah. I mean, I you know we, you know, with with jazz. And I, I hope I'm not off base in saying this. You know, it seems like a lot of the emphasis, because mm. I'm, I'm in all the music I'm involved with. I always feel like I'm a kind of a poser outsider. Well, so I always feel a little strange making declarative statements. <laughs> Maybe.
1: Just don't don't confess too often. You know that right. that feeling is never going to go away. But uh, yeah, yeah. Or or um, confine your confessions to the right place, which is you know your your blog is great. Sure. Now everybody knows.
0: well i I was just gonna say that that virtuosity and creative self-expression are intrinsically intertwined Mm. in the world of jazz you know what you do with with your interpretation of the tune what you do with your time to solo Mm. it's this hyper specific combination of those things yeah you know being you know having a voice that is intense you know very much your own, but yeah. also filtered through the lens of being able to play the shit out of your instrument. Mm. Mm. Um, and certainly, if you think about like uh, when I when I hear you say that, you think about people like Miles and Coltrane. Mm. It's exactly what they were doing. Mm. It was like blowing the roof off with <laughs> their <laughs> instruments. Yeah. So, so you came to New York when you were eighteen. Uh, yes. And did you go? I think you told. I think I heard you talk about this. You went to Bleecker Street, right?
1: I, Bleecker Street, I, I knew uh, the Take Three on Bleecker Street. That was a club. It was a club, and Cecil Taylor was there for a month, I think, mm. in the summer of this, the same summer that that would have been the summer of 62, the first visit to New York. But before that, um, two things. In 1960, Miles Davis ca- came to... Europe to tour with Coltrane in the band, but Coltrane left in the middle of the tour. They just issued that. Yeah, yeah. Did you go? Well, no, because they by the time they came to England, London, Coltrane had left, and Sonny Stitt had been flown over like an emergency <sighs> replacement. Uh huh. So I it I was great, I heard the band, but not the one we. We were you were hoping to hear way, Train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You
0: hadn't seen him live. No,
1: no. So, but then in 61, I did hear it at Coltrane live. His quartet? The quintet with Do- Dolphy. Right. One week, About one week after the Live at the Village of vanguard, the original.
0: You saw them in London? In London, yeah. At which club?
1: Uh, it wasn't a club. It was a cinema, which okay. was, you know, yeah, the way they did Medium-sized concerts in those days.
0: I mean, being being in England, did this music seem like it was a world away, or was there a substantial enough jazz culture in England that you felt like you had direct direct access?
1: Direct access would be going too far, but but I felt I knew where to go, yeah, and to hover, and to hope to be patted on the yeah on the back, or more likely on the head, you know that. Well done, little boy. You know, now go away and learn to play. That's the culture. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> That's the culture. Who who were the people that you were looking to have your head patted by?
1: Well, uh, Toby Hayes and um, Ronnie Scott. Ronnie Scott. I, later on, I did. I I wouldn't say I became friends with Ron, Ronnie Scott, but I came to know him in a way where I could say hello, Ronnie. How's it going? And
0: mm-hmm. yeah. So you see, Train and Dolphy in '61. Yeah. I have to imagine that at that. But point.
1: I'd seen Dolphy in Birdland in oh no no in '62 I saw Dolphy at Birdland.
0: But yeah. The
1: two visits to New York, uh, Coltrane was never playing, so I never. And saw he was it, the one you were looking for. Well, I would have loved to have been to the uh, the half note, and yeah, uh, that would that's my dream. You know, if 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 only I could have been to one of those.
0: Go half, back in time. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Because that's that's where they seem to be freest and. Oh, just uh, f- unbelievable music from from the. Does that
0: do, do you? When you think back, w- were you cognizant of that sense of freedom? That that's what you were being drawn towards.
1: I suppose mm-hmm. you know, yeah. The well, the power, the power of individuals. Exercising free, free choice, yeah. I think that's it. And the the music is a manifest, manifestation of their individuality mm-hmm. and their decision to be in control of what they're doing. Yeah. So it has a political dimension, I think. Yeah. Or a socio-political dimension, psychosocial political. <laughs> Absolutely, dimension. yeah. It's it's everything is there. Uh huh. And if you can find a way to do that and survive. Well, you've you've sort of cracked one of the big problems, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the particular economic and political climate prevailing in in uh, what was in effect still post-war Britain. Uh, well, we we don't have anything like that now. Mm-hmm. Still, people are coming through and and solving the problems their own way, but it's nowhere near as easy as it easy as it was mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. You know, I say say this kind of stuff often because it comes up, but uh, rents were cheap, mm-hmm. food was cheap. If that was a survival for you and you had no great ambitions beyond playing and surviving, well, it was possible. Yeah. And it's become increasingly more difficult to do that. Yeah. In the intervening... 50 years certainly
0: yeah and i think there's something crucial there which is the amount of yourself that you give to it like breakthroughs i think happen at points of some version of exhaustion (laughs) you know if you're giving yourself an hour a day yeah to work on Mm. your your playing your Mm. writing your voice you know Mm. whatever it is Mm. there's there's certain breakthroughs that are less likely to occur than Mm. if you're giving yourself Not just you know four five six seven hours, but also more time and freedom to let ideas sort of roll around in your head and and be evolved.
1: That's definitely true.
0: I remember William Parker telling me there's over on Sixth Avenue, uh, it's now the IFC Cinema, but it used to be the Waverly Theater. And him and all the musicians he was involved with at the time, um, early seventies, they they were able to rent the basement for some something just hilarious you mm. know like 40 dollars a month or something mm. and they would just have a set like again a session that never ended <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: that's the way to do it
0: so this period of time you were you were you had the the you were you had people in england that you guys were working on on well playing i together. was
1: very fortunate to meet john stevens just just at the point where he'd um found a place, an equivalent space, you know, not, yeah. uh, not for $40. But I don't think he was paying any rent at all. But the, 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 the conditions were perhaps not quite as free in, it, in the right. sense of the availability. Right. You, you couldn't describe it as a 24-hour-a-day jam session. It wasn't that. It was after 10 o'clock at night till midnight, something like that.
0: But that's very workable.
1: Which, which was, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and it, I think it was seven nights a week to begin with john had the plan to uh, program seven nights but i think they chopped that down to six and we're talking early 70s no we're talking like, already late 60s late 60s i think he called the he wrote one piece called club 66 which was for the little theater club yeah and that was the dawn of a new era you know so yeah. 66 67 i think by 67 i was part of the inner circle of that
0: up. So, who was there? John Stevens, you, Derek Bailey, Derek Paul Bailey.
1: Rutherford, Barry Guy. Okay. So the,
0: I mean, like the nucleus of yeah, a lot of important. Trevor music. Watts, I should yeah.
1: mention. Kenny Wheeler, although Kenny was, of course, also a family man, trying to earn a living for his family and doing sessions and doing everything. Really, so mm-hmm. he wasn't there at the Theatre Club as often as. Uh, it yeah, was often there but not as often as the rest of us
0: and and you guys were focusing primarily on on free music
1: y- yeah after a, after a, after about sometime in 67 i would say that happened
0: yeah, yeah. Mm. do you, was there a, a defining moment that you recall probably there was but i, I don't <laughs> <You can't>
1: recall. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know exactly what it was but i don't
0: i don't want to um, uh, okay maybe yeah maybe off mic quick <laughs> <laughs> I have to imagine there were some pretty lively conversations that would occur as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, you, you know, it was uh, intense.
0: Yeah. And schisms. Sure. And
1: firings, and you're not in this band anymore, and I don't want to play in your band anyway, and, uh, I'm, you know, schiz- people leaving and coming back and forgiving and forgetting <laughs> and then not forgiving and then remembering yeah. and... It was...
0: Some things never change. No. The intense emotional volatility of young creative people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's how it was. Yeah. But you guys were all putting your own groups together or was this like a collective that was a... It it
1: never got defined as a collective. Mm -hmm. Later on, we did have something we called the Musicians' Cooperative. Right. But it never had the... The form of a a legally constituted cooperative which, sure you know where we all pool our properties and later on, I found out quite um what a commitment to a a real cooperative is actually a legally constituted cooperative yeah yeah never never
0: been involved in that, but we use the the term loose, but i mean loosely. it's probably good that you or i mean it might. Maybe it is good that you weren't thinking about things in those terms. Yeah, I think
1: so. No, it would have fallen apart much quicker than it did. In fact, it didn't really fall apart. It just um, uh, morphed into including more of the, what we we used to call second generation players. And uh, then they took 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 the idea and started something called the London Musicians Collective, mm-hmm. which was also probably not really a collective, but they... Right. Had, You know, it was a nice title and represented an ideal and to an extent they were collective and cooperative. Yeah. And that that's been a key to survival, I think, as one of the one of the keys to the survival is to get get started in a way Mm -hmm. where everybody's looking out for everybody. Mm -hmm. Even even when
0: they're arguing they still see
1: that they have shared interests and uh,
0: I think with improvising musicians specifically, and I know that I've I had this I've had this in my life, and I, mm. you know, very fortunate, and I kind of miss it at times. But so a period of time, mm. age, maybe nineteen to twenty six, twenty seven of with you know some version of you know four to ten people mm. constantly playing, mm. talking for hours and hours after playing, mm. you know, maybe having some really wrong-minded ideas, but. Just letting, letting little nuggets kind of form in that space. Yep, that's it. That's it. I actually worry about myself that I don't do that now. <laughs> and are there obstacles to
1: that you haven't created yourself? Are there obstacles outside your own mind, your know, physical obstacles that would prevent that?
0: No, no, absolutely not. Um, do you see a
1: place for that kind of thing here?
0: With in my, in, in my right pers-
1: now in New York, yeah,
0: certainly I think it would be useful. Mm. I think a lot of people are, are um, for whatever yeah. I, I think
1: because uh, uh, you got such a such a community of players,
0: some wonderful players here.
1: It wouldn't take a, a big financial commitment from no. many, any any one of them to find a place
0: well I mean, if you get into the conversation of individualism versus collectivism yeah i think it, for something like that to really happen it needs to push a little more towards collectivism well it has to yeah yeah and we i don't see no. that as being a predominant cultural it's not being really being embraced here <laughs> let's just say that you know there's a lot of <laughs>
1: but if it makes things possible that are otherwise not possible yeah you know it's it's just it, the ideological bag baggage of leftist politics which goes with that is just a waste of time you're never going to agree politically with right. schisms on the left are notorious for there's that fan, fantastic um emo the is he called the uh comedian emo phillips yeah <laughs> i mean it's uh, it's based on religion what does he say well it ends with the i can't do justice to the sketch sure but, yeah he was but a, very, he's the, a very unique voice yeah 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 but basically, he meets. It's about the meeting between two characters, one, and they they share a, an interest in Christianity. And oh, wh- wh- what Catholic or Protestant? No, I'm, I'm Protestant. Okay, I'm uh, Lutheran or blah blah. Oh, I'm Lutheran, and it goes on down to sure. the narrowest difference between uh, ideologies, and the his the final thing is. One's in You've got to listen to the sketch. It's so good. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, the fin- final thing is die heretic scum. Right. They they share everything except that last thing. Right. And then they don't and that to me is also true of uh
0: the the left in general. Well, the left, I mean, we're in a very strange time right now yeah. and yeah. I I would argue that for a variety of reasons and we'll you know, we'll go back to talking okay. about music, okay. but yeah. There is a serious identity crisis going yeah, on, yeah, and, yeah. and there's a lot of you know. I, I, I think I think in the United Kingdom and the United States, like we're we're in a we're pretty comparable places of just completely confused mm. social unrest on mm. every part of the yeah, spectrum. Yeah, uh, people are disaffected <sighs> with uh, politics, or overly infected. You know the but, the amount of. You know you got to be really careful talking about this stuff, yeah, even. you know, i yeah. i it gets a little tricky, yes, you know, but
1: that's i don't know, those are the times everybody's defining themselves, and
0: yeah, as uh, I'm not with you that's awkward does it well well so then l- l- let me ask you, does this feel at all and I know you were you know i mean you you were in the u k yeah but during the sixties, yeah. As the Vietnam War was heating up, yeah this is, I'm talking from like a very specific American point of view, and the yeah. civil rights movement was yeah. really coming to a boil, yeah. does this current time feel reminiscent of that at all
1: not I mean back then at the 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 distinctions, the aims the the strategies were all clearer, I think, yeah. I think so now it's so so much harder to define who is who is your natural allies, who are your natural enemies? Mm-hmm. And everybody's looking over their shoulder and defining themselves in terms of who their enemies are, sure, and perhaps your friend was doing that, you know yeah because youve you, you've crossed the line and you're no you can no longer be his friend you know that's a, a strange thing to arrive at a, a yeah. place like that, yeah. With, without further discussion, it's as though you've erected the principle uh, ahead of the, the specifics of the relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. <sighs> Back to jazz. When did you pick up the soprano, <laughs> <Zach's>? <laughs> I I picked up the soprano. There was a... Oh, that's Martin.
0: Awesome. Oh, yeah.
1: Who's that? It's Duchamp. I yeah, think. yeah, I yeah. got that
0: from uh, Fred Frith sent that to me. Okay. Yeah.
1: I know where he got it, I think. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's Duchamp. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: I made... I put a mustache on it. Wait, uh, you did that? If... if Well, I don't... I'll, let well, me I'll, see it. I'll, I'll open up the the picture frame.
0: But For anyone listening, there's a picture frame in my office of... Duchamp that Fred Frith sent me as a postcard.
1: Well, I certainly did something, but I made a you know this originally he did the Mona Lisa with L H O O Q. Uh huh. The letters L H O O Q. Okay. Which when you pronounce it quickly in French, is sounds exactly like she's got a hot ass. <laughs> So I did, I, I'm not saying Fred stole this from me. I, I think I know where he got the postcard. But now look at it closer. It's not, I don't think it is the same postcard. Yeah. But I did it. I had E, e. so i left have to write it out for you. The letter E. Okay. Eight. A, the letter uh-huh. A. Then pi, the Greek letter pi. Right. And then the number four and the letter T. Okay. He ate a pie for tea. <laughs> well, well, if well, I can find one, I'll well, send well, we'll it. We'll correct. that thing open can, it is. Yeah, second. you can you can put it alongside Fred's. Yeah,
0: I would love that. Okay. So I was listening just uh, this afternoon because uh, uh, to the first Cecil Taylor record. Okay. Jazz advance. I think that's the first one.
1: I think so too. Yeah, with Lacy. And- the second track, Lacey comes on. Yeah, and. That's some out stuff. It
0: still sounds unusual. It, was it 50,
1: f- 55 or 56 or I think something? I it was
0: 56. Probably, rec- maybe recorded in 55. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Do you remember hearing that for like, the first time?
1: Well, it was out of sequence, but it was a fairly rare record. Yeah. I think the first of Taylor I heard with Lacey would have been uh, Newport. Right. Where they, oh, it's one side, on the other side is Gigi Grice. Uh-huh. And they, uh huh. And they play Johnny Come Lately and uh, a couple of Cecil's originals. Uh, yeah. Cecil makes announcements. Here we'll concern ourselves with the long forms as well as the shorter forms. And, yeah. Okay. That, that was the one I heard first.
0: That, that first, when he first makes that appearance on, yeah. the, on, the, on the second track and he's playing the solo, mm. the way he makes the notes pop out. With like yeah. such clarity, like if you just even like moment to moment within the solo, it's like yeah. it almost sounds like a trumpet sometimes. Yeah, it's very
1: unusual. You think that was clo- close to his um, Dixieland experiences? Maybe you know he was still thinking of uh, Bechet and the, sopr- sure. the soprano and Bechet. Yeah, because that that was
0: pre Coltrane soprano. Absolutely, this is a solid yeah. five to seven yeah. seven years before yeah. my favorite things. Yeah. Does your relationship with the soprano start with Bechet?
1: No, it starts with um, Coltrane. Yeah. Really. And yeah. there was a period when I couldn't afford a tenor. So I actually was playing soprano. It was a really junky instrument. But uh, I got it playing. I re-padded it myself. Really? Yeah. And uh hopeless job, but it, it obviously worked. And uh, while I saved up for the first tenor so I, b- before that i was an alto player
0: right do you, do you feel were you thinking at all in hierarchical terms about the tenor and the soprano
1: i was thinking how can i become john coltrane <laughs> obviously we're need, also thinking that i i obviously
0: need one of those and one yeah. of those <laughs> yeah yeah it's still the classic double <laughs> it's <laughs> the double that makes the most sense <laughs> But but did you but physically did you feel the soprano make sense quickly? I I, I think it was work. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh,
1: God knows what I sounded like, but it was the key to meeting John Stevens actually to bring that back. How so? so well, there's a story that I in my jazz life, if I could call it that, I was doing my best to play. Like Coltrane, like the, and- the modal music mostly. Okay. You know, so take, taking the easy track. Sure. Never really knowing quite what the Coltrane ch- changes on, uh, you know, the alternatives to two five ones and things. Never really got to grips with that. Yeah. But the modal stuff, I was doing what I thought was better than it probably was. Mm hmm some of that was on soprano and uh out of the blue a friend of uh, a friend asked for some music for a film that he was a student at the film school of the royal college of art and my friend said he he wants some futuristic music was a film sort of science fiction film and I had a quartet with piano, bass, bass and drums at that time, and I asked the other guys, "Would you like to do some futuristic music?" And the piano player said, "I've no idea what that is." And the drummer said, "What would I be doing?" And the bass player said, "Oh yeah, that's okay. Yeah, let's see what happens." So we we did some futuristic music, Mm -hmm. and. uh, two things happened and um, one in a way that's how i met john stevens because uh he, he was the bass player on that session no no he wasn't uh-huh. no it was my student my band of fellow students uh-huh. at the university um but uh the john was at the they call it the diploma show at the end of the year where everybody gets there they graduate and they show their work and mm-hmm. So this was the film for this guy, Gavin Owen. He lives over here now. In New York? Yeah, uh, upstate New York, okay. I think. Um, I think he plays with a psychedelic rock band as well. I think so. Okay. Nobody do- that stayed doing what they were qualified to do. That was a great thing about the Royal College of Art. Maybe <laughs> maybe only David Hockney stayed doing what... You know, he went there to fuck up the painting school. <laughs> And carried on fucking up painting, you know. That
0: he, As one should. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But uh, most of them, if they were there to learn to make films, they ended up painting, mm-hmm. which was true of uh, Alfreda Ben. She introduced me to John Stevens mm-hmm. because she was a friend of this Gavin Owen, and uh, John, she suggested that John go and listen to what I'd done for the, uh, for the film. And John said that was really interesting. Do you want to come and play at the little theatre club yeah. for the
0: film? You guys just played free. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Free with the constraint of it's got to sound futuristic, and that in a way has remained my my, ge- my game, my plan. <laughs> well, my- <laughs> how does one define futuristic? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you can imagine it now, what makes it futuristic? Well, that's the you know that's the that's the place I live in really.
0: Yeah. That's that's the root of it.
1: That, that's the root of it. That's and and uh, the other you might as well hear the whole story was, you know, because I append to this, the massive effect that seeing for the Forbidden Planet film had on me when I was about nine years old. Yeah. Lewis and B.B. B. Barron did the music. Okay. They weren't allowed to be called musicians. The, the um AFM or whatever it's called said no 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 you can't make mu- music using no electronics no 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 you can call them technicians, <laughs> and that's the credits they got for the music. It's kind of cooler like, in a way. In a way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, so I knew, I knew, in, in a way, what futuristic music sounded like. It sounded like the music that they'd done for, for Forbidden Forbidden Planet. Yeah. And I'd also been listening, of course, to what little stuff of Stockhausen and Boulez was available on, right. rec- on record at that point. Right. Very little material available.
0: When you think back on that time period, do you, was that music, specifically let's say Stockhausen yeah. and Boulez, yeah. yeah. was that music available and accessible to a wide variety of people? Was it predominantly the elite and no. the academics? No. Who, who was getting their hands on that stuff? Freaks. Right.
1: Yeah they, yeah, they they didn't get any academic acknowledgement in in England until resistance was futile. You know, it's like yeah, I would say ten years later at least.
0: So when you when you first came into contact with that stuff, was it just like, "What the hell is this"? Yeah, or?
1: it was. Yeah. Yeah. But in a, I mean, the the, the Boulez record was of Lamato Sommet. And the Stockhausen one, the first ones were the the Ziklus for for percussion. Okay. And um, Gesang der Junglinge. I remember those being of that time. Yeah. Specifically, not just of that time, but available. Because Mm -hmm. England has always been a little bit, as you know, (laughs) distant from Europe, continental Europe.
3: (laughs) A little bit, just
1: a little bit. Suspicious of continental Europe. (laughs) right what those French people get up to and what those German people get get up to. And not much has changed, as you, you see. With it. But we won't talk about that.
0: I'll just say, I remember the first time I was in England. Yeah. And we had a day off in um, Brighton. I was walking around, and I found a record store. I said, oh, you know, going here to see what's going on. Yeah. And I look around, and it takes me like 30 seconds to realize that there are only CDs and records by British artists. Right. And I kind of said as a joke to the guy, I said, hey, man, where's all the American shit? And uh, he gave me the nastiest look. (laughs) I said, The Clash is great, man. Anything else going on around here?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah.
0: Yeah. So that
1: that was an important uh, element, you know, the fact that, that was my calling card, as it were, to to meet John Stevens at the right, the appropriate level. You know, yeah, that he was aware that I could do some things. Yeah, and had done something. And uh, do you? But f- maybe it gave them the impression that I was more a more advanced thinking person at that point than I actually was. I don't know. Well, um, that's but, but the- you you quickly adjust to. Okay, um, this this stuff. Yeah, why not? And then the the the, the uh, self reflection and everything that, that well, it came from somewhere. You did it, so yeah. Why is it futuristic? You know, it's just in you. Keep going, and then after after a while, the activity itself generates its own
0: momentum. It does. Yeah, but I feel like with you specifically. Mm. A lot of what a lot of people of my generation and now, like people that have, are coming after, mm. what they're drawn to, what they're attracted to, what is is, um and I'm ta- I guess I'm talking specifically about three different things. I'm talking about the solo work, mm. and I'm talking about the work with the two different trios with Litten and Guy, yeah. and with Schlippenbach. Is is a lot? What of, of what gets us going is we can hear the sound of someone who's spent. The past several decades creating this this instantly unique sound Mm. and and you hear hard work in it you hear absolute expressivity that is not hindered by anything Mm. um and that's what i mean that's you know there's there's a lot of us that i i i still feel and a lot of I I remember a specific period of time where I was really coming to terms with a lot of of your playing, and I felt like okay, let's let's start work, mm. and I said let's start with one sound. How can I turn this one sound into music? Mm. That was certainly the great thing that I've taken from a lot of what your music is. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was that period of time? Was that? Do you feel like that was the?
1: Well. I don't know exactly at what point what you could call a sense of self emerges. Uh-huh. But if it if it doesn't emerge, then you all you can do is learn a trade, learn a craft, learn a you know. There has to be a creative component, which is something about what you what you are, what mm-hmm. you what you feel, and without that, you can still be a fantastic player. But you you you're dependent on other people's definitions of music,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I suppose I I cut that stage out of my uh, development in a way. Mm.
0: Do you? Um, what were the the very first? I remember in an email you and I had years ago. Yeah. Uh, I I was I picked up that reissue of saxophone solos. Okay. You know, I said, this is crazy shit, man, you know. <laughs> and and he said something like, you know, the seeds of what would become are all yeah, there. It's just a yeah, little rough, but yeah. what was that period of practice like for you?
1: By the time I made that record, I was already working. The, the, the really intense practice was all in the past. Yeah? Like, yeah, because I couldn't... You know, you can't do it. You can't travel and practice 12 hours a day. You know, I, I never practiced 12 hours a day. I may have got up to six, seven. Sure. That's
0: still quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It,
1: it is. It really means you're not doing anything else. But yeah. it's it's not at the level where you're eating while you're practicing. And, you know, right. Or trying to do, trying to read a book and practice. Like Coltrane in the hotel room <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. I couldn't do that. Right. But... Uh, it's strange, being at Ned's and borrowing that soprano from Ned with using my mouthpiece, and he's got a book of uh, the East German publication of, of the Bach solo violin music mm-hmm. uh, with the partites, sonatas and partitas, and uh, they, they don't fit perfectly on the instrument, but there are chunks, huge chunks, which lay very nicely in the range of the saxophone. Sometimes they go down to it an A or a G, Mm -hmm. low, which is not that difficult to deal with. They don't usually go up too high. Mm -hmm. So I've been playing those again for the first time in about 30 years and realizing, man, your your reading is horribly rusty. Uh, I haven't done much
0: of it. You make sacrifices.
1: Yeah, I made a sacrifice, I think.
3: Well, I remember
0: I was taking a lesson with Marty Ehrlich uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. And he mentioned that he never learned how to circular breathe. Mm. Mm. And that in a conversation with Ned Rothenberg, Ned said to him, I think something Marty said, do I need to learn how to do this? And he said, yeah, you know, when you're doing it, you won't sound quite like Marty Ehrlich. And that was enough for Marty. like, then I'll just, you know, keep doing my thing over yeah. here. I, I'm not, yeah. I don't mean to speak for anyone, but yeah, no, no, but you, th- the point is you do one chooses thing, what to focus on. This p- provokes the, the great, um,
1: Thing that Paul Blay said uh, in one of the books. I, I don't know if it was the one called um, "Chasing Time" or something. It's one one of the books that I think is done by interview with with somebody, and he says, "Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, all the fuss about Evan Parker and the circular breathing. I, I I can see it's it's going over. It's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I can see." And then I was practicing yesterday and I looked at my f- fingers and I thought, wait a minute, I'm circular breathing. <laughs> and, you know, too much can be made of that uh, because of string players and keyboard yeah. players. that
0: It's it's, it's another it's, tool. Yeah. It's another tool. I mean, uh, uh, there's certainly... There has to be
1: a reason f- of for course. it. Or a compelling reason. I, I, I know you get, let's say you get a certain amount of... Uh, Attention, just for the sheer spectacle. It's yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. But that's not why but, you
1: do it. Well, I hope not. I hope to God not, because uh, you know, it's. It, I think it led me into some, some very interesting material. It didn't begin by revealing what it would reveal. You know, to to begin with, it was just a basically like Harry Carney uh, holding the long notes at the end of a Duke Ellington arra- yeah. arrangement.
0: I feel but, like I, but
1: I c- gradually I th- well I can what's happening here and actually Steve Reich wrote a pl- piece a short piece about um what was it called Syst- not systematic it must have had something to do with um music as a
0: should we go knock on the slow door?
1: moving process I think or something yeah. like that and I Thought at the time, well, this is a, a close uh, definition uh, definition of something which, actually, in England, we called systems music mm-hmm. rather than uh, repetitive music or what what minimal music. The terminology is varied. Yeah, and I I thought that uh, Steve Reich was defining a particular approach to systematic uh, music making or music composing. Yeah. And uh, that not all systems have to be mathematically rigorous Uh or you know formula formula driven. You can you can work with systems which are also under intuitive control, and that that was the germ of of the what what has
0: become. uh, You know, this body of solo work. I feel like circular breathing quite naturally. Uh, lends itself and contributes to momentum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Um, I, I've, I've, I, I feel like as a listener, when I've, I've listened to a lot of your stuff, I don't really hear the circular breathing um, as that's, much with with when you're improvising with others. That's. I'm very
1: pleased to hear you say that. Yeah, yeah. There's supposed to be something more interesting going on, you right? Know, than just the fact that somebody's got
0: that knack, you know. Yeah. I mean I've, you know, I'm I'm now I'm, I'm almost 40. It's weird mm. to say that. Mm. Uh yeah. I've never learned how to circular breathe and in solo stuff I've I've been learning I I've, I've really embracing the challenge of not pushing myself to circular breathe or fake circular breathe mm. but to figure out how to not let gap breath gaps uh deteriorate any yeah, sense of momentum. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Or to embrace, you know, silence in a way that, in in any number of ways.
1: Yeah. That's an important uh, realization on your part, I would say. Because sometimes I think, well, you can breathe. You don't have to do this. You know, you're not a circus trick. Right. And sometimes these days, I've I've been thinking about shorter pieces as as well. Yeah?
0: Yeah. What's the impetus of that? Ah!
1: just to do something different it doesn't always work right but uh i would say the the idea of the almost mythologizing of circular breathing in Western culture, is is must be bizarre for for people in other cultures where it's a, a, actually taken for granted. Of course, you circular breathe. You play the whatever it is. Yeah, the shanai or whatever. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So I would like to return it to that kind of uh, status of something that is taken for granted. and yeah. Now, what you're going to do with it? Yeah. You know, what, yeah.
0: It's it's a tool that you yeah. use when it's necessary. Yeah. But. Yeah. It, yeah. It's funny that you say that you've been working on shorter pieces. Peter Evans and I had this conversation okay. recently. I did, yeah. And I, I did a tour last year, a solo tour, of maybe eight dates or something, yeah. where I the challenge of the tour was to play short pieces. Mm. Um, and I found a very rewarding musical experience, at least for, I, I can't speak for the listeners, but yeah. from my yeah. side of yeah. things.
1: Um, well, I think that uh, if I did that, and it might sound a little bit, almost uh, self-aggrandizing, but I might ask the audience not to applause, applaud between pieces so that I could shape the whole experience and then they could evaluate the whole experience at the yeah. end when I indicate that's okay. If you wish to applaud, you can applaud now. Yeah. Because the that kind of sense of uh, playing for the approval... It, Dangerous the, the, shit yeah the long the long long improvisations complete set improvisations i think are somewhat in some ways have evolved in order to avoid dealing with audience approval until until the music is finished and then mm-hmm. okay you're not going to take away the option of the the audience indicating it's either enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm, that that remains their prerogative, they're right. But take it out of the equation as far as, and, until the formal statement that you intend is over, mm-hmm. and if the formal statement that you intend is 15 short pieces, then I'd to have applause between each of those becomes
0: It'd be very. It would destroy dist- momentum.
1: Destructive and yeah. and and irritating for everybody. In the well, end. then,
0: but then though, if if you present yeah. it that way as like a let's say a series of improvised etudes, yeah. Now you're getting to that tricky place yeah. of. Well, this is me the composer. This yeah. is you me the saxophonist, and like, why are you? Sa- I'm not. I'm not saying you, but why are these well, things being I'm, separated?
3: Well, yeah.
1: It, we'll find out if it's a risk worth taking. I mean, I, mean, I haven't got to that stage yet. I think it's still, absolutely a risk worth taking. Uh, still thinking about it and working on it. And uh, the downside of, uh, playing on Ned's soprano is that it's not my soprano. It's got different qualities. Mm-hmm. And the read, the particular read that I I'm working on, or I've been working on the last, for these last concerts here, uh, doesn't do certain things on Ned's instrument, so I, when I get home, I have to find out. Is it was it uh, because it's Ned's instrument? If anything, is covering better than sure. my own horn.
0: Sure, I don't doubt that.
1: And uh, I just want to find out what's going on because uh, some things that I take for granted just aren't happening. I think it's the reed, but I I, I can't.
0: Please me- tell me you brought more than one reed with you.
1: I bought more than one reed, but these <laughs> synthetic reeds. First of all, they're rather expensive.
0: I play synthetic okay. reeds now. Okay, yeah.
1: And the other thing is that they they need adjustment of work. And, yeah, they do. You know, it's a question of finding the time to do that. If you've got one that plays,
0: cling are, to this, it like a branch over exactly. a raging river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They.
1: It's so which synthetics are you playing then? Légère. Okay.
0: Yeah, they're. I mean, for clarinet, they're cheap-ish. They're mm. twenty bucks, and it'll play solidly for six months. Yeah, uh, and you will have it'll play on the bandstand as it does in your practice space. Right, right. Which is ultimately why I I made the transition. Okay. maybe five years ago or so. And
1: you did you consider um, Hartman or any of the more f- f- fiber. Uh, I haven't even explored this okay. friend of
0: mine who is this you know amazing classical clarinetist. Okay. He said try légère. Okay, he said give yourself a week to get used to it because it will be a little yeah. challenging yeah. at first. Yeah. And certain, I mean, exactly within seven days, I said, okay. This feels pretty good. Okay, and yeah, yeah. You know, I would say give the Hartman, Hartman. Hartman a chance. I mean, if you can find
1: Hahn, yeah, even more of a chance. Look, I'm I'm using up the supply of Hahn's that I bought. When and did
0: you switch to synthetic?
1: um soprano I've played synthetics since uh, since the mid 70s I would say yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: the soprano mouthpiece and the, the instrument itself really the margin of error is very thin
1: very very thin
0: <laughs> it becomes an attachment of you so quickly mm no
1: yeah it's when you realize because when you work on the reed and you you're you're trying to make it narrower yeah so that, and then you go too far but it's it's still playing but the margin of setting it up accurately <laughs> on the mouthpiece so you've lost any margin you know it's like if you don't get it exactly in the right place yeah it's leaking on one side or the other or you know and it's behaving weird yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's,
0: it's such a but <laughs> it's a challenge I personally feel like I constantly feel this thing of well A I don't have a lot of time to focus on a lot of yeah. instruments yeah okay I gotta make something happen on the bass clarinet okay I need to have that expressive range yeah. available to me when I play the bass clarinet and again I'm not playing it as much as I have or as much as I do with the soprano yeah I feel much my it's there's like a big much bigger block between my ideas and the actualized sound the bigger mouthpiece yeah the thicker reed yeah. does that physical relationship occur with you at all Yeah, i've even
1: started to worry about the the fact that the keys in the right hand open across a a bigger gap than the ones in the left hand yeah which may not be true on the clarinet being a cylindrical instrument no yeah it's not it's not with my fingers as much as it is my breath i mean it's very strange that there are all kinds of things that you st- you're you obviously compensating for without really being consciously aware that you're doing it. You've been playing this thing for so long, you take yeah. for granted. And in a way, this corresponds to a, a breakthrough that I had, which also won't apply to the clarinet. What's that? Which is three fin- six fingers down, you know, the the thing that would be a D on the saxophone. Take off the right three fingers, you get a G. Take off the left three fingers, you go to a C sharp, not to a C. Right. So you've got a, a, a dis, what would you call it? There's a a crucial lack of symmetry between the right. motion between the two hands, but yeah. also between that, that D and the C sharp from all fin- all fingers down D, all fingers off C sharp. That's a, all the twelve tones. Mm-hmm. So, it, all twelve tone rows can be played in what I call the closed position, which is in that in that interval D to C sharp. Yeah, and that, that's been tremendously useful for um, pr- generating random uh,
0: <laughs> practice material. But when you're when you're doing solo, like you, I've heard you solo in person mm. at least two dozen times. It uh, feels like that. It was more like uh, one. No. No, sorry. I've been, I've been to many <laughs> Evan Barker concerts and I've got I've got I think all the solo records. Um, do you when you're playing solo do you look or, or do you embrace uh, the unexpected like I'm talking not yeah. I'm talking physically. Yeah. Like if a note pops out or something. Obviously. Yeah.
1: Well otherwise I'm it's about me and and my imagination which is a very limited resource you know the instrument has to provide feedback yeah and uh, the the I, I guess the thing that you learn to do is to incorporate those uh events unexpected events and to bring them under control yeah and in the longer term that's why <laughs> it's such a slow slow pro- process in a way is that you're bringing those chance events into control, which in turn generates different kinds of chance events, which you bring under control, which and so on. It's a, it feels like something it, miraculous is it's happening. A, well, it's a, a, definitely a feedback relationship between between you and what the instrument, the nature of the instrument.
0: Right. Right. But you need to be able to show up physically and and yeah, instinctually if, to.
1: If things are not right, if the room's not being particularly helpful, or if the reads not
0: right.
3: doesn't,
1: you know, is not really the best read you've ever played, and so on. Yeah, uh, everything needs to be right, and then maybe you learn a thing that you didn't know at the end of the concert. You know, one more little thing that you didn't know before you started. Yeah, and uh, it's a. I I guess that. Uh, the rate at which you learn new stuff slows down, which can be frustrating for people that feel that superficially they've heard every, like, no, but why is he still doing that stuff? We've heard it all. But I take uh, solace from uh, people like Lamont Young and, uh, you know, the guys that just, they've got a program.
0: Keep chipping away at yeah, it. I, yeah. I can tell you objectively that the solo you played last week at that apartment, mm. um, mm, was one of the greatest things i've heard you do like i i got emotionally Mm. devastated listening to it and i could if there's no questions that if you put that on randomly beside six of one beside the snake decides i would pick it instantly okay you know and it sounded i remember
1: that well that's it that's what i hope is happening yeah you know that the average is consistently doing something different than the average of what back then
0: i mean i have to i i and i you're the person i want to ask about this yeah. i was i was talking about this with joe morris like yeah. the instrument and improvised music specifically for me helps me i i use these things as a way of understanding where i'm at emotionally mm. and where i'm at you know just like with my own sense of stability when my practice mm. routine is good mm. when my chops are up Yeah, when I'm showing up and I'm being present to to play music with people whose ideas I really admire, yeah, I'm without question always in a better place emotionally. What do you think?
1: What? How do you feel when you've done all the preparation, right? Everything is going well. Chops are good. uh, Read is good. Room is okay, and
0: you're still playing under under par. You see that bridge I'm not, I'm, back there? I'm go, <laughs> no. no, honestly, I, I I am more likely to go into a dark place if if something happens. You know, it's just not that hip. Yeah, I'm, I'm more likely to be okay with it when these boxes are checked because you know.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, shitty of shit
0: happens. Bad you, nights happen.
1: If you've got, if you know that it's your fault, that's somehow easier to accept. It is. Even if, I mean, the simple cases. If you, if I eat too much before the gig, this is really right. a you know a, a mistake that I should never make again in my life. But every so often it happens.
0: You eat too much bread or something.
1: Too much of food, any yeah. kind of food. It's just a, a bad feeling to play on a full stomach. Absolutely. And uh, those myths about Charlie—well, they're probably true stories. But Charlie Parker eating two suppers and drinking a bottle of gin before he starts is—I know—I it's a hard act to follow. Yeah. I, can't, I can't do it.
0: I'm not sure I'd want to. But you also, if you picked up Charlie Parker's sacks, you wouldn't sound like him.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I actually touched the Grafton acrylic that, that belonged to Charlie Parker. Really? Yeah, yeah. The auction. Chan uh, sold all the m- memorabilia that she had uh-huh. at auction in London. And uh, my repairman was called in to uh, make it playable. Because they wanted Pete King, the English saxophone player, to play. It was just, beat, well, the pads
0: were dead. Everything.
1: Yeah, it was a difficult job for for Willie because on the one hand,
0: uh, it's like restoring it's, the Mona Lisa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: you, and too much work would have would have uh, you'd have needed to replace pads and all of that kind of thing, and that mm-hmm. would have changed its archival status. And uh, they decided, uh, I think Pete King said, "Well, just make make it play down to low D and." Uh, I'll make sense of that. Yeah. Don't worry about the bell keys and the. So I, you know, I I actually heard Pete King play on it, and it was there there when the um, people were viewing. It wasn't the actual auction. I think in the end, the auction was the next day, and it was bought by telephone by the mayor of Kansas City or.
0: Where he was from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you made a record, you put out a record a couple years ago that really stopped me in my tracks called As the Wind. Uh, A trio with Mark Nassif. I'm so happy you say that. It completely, completely made me stop what I was doing and sit with the music. And and I was almost reminded of Takamitsu listening to it, which both that record and Takamitsu have a big emotional impact on Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, uh, that, that... Although technically... It was Mark's idea to put the three of us together. So I make acknowledgement In the liner notes, you acknowledge that, that. yeah. Yeah. But I know, in a way, it's my record. And uh, uh, I asked Mark for permission to call it my record. Call it such, yeah. 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 But there's something
0: happening on that record. That record is, is... yeah.
1: I can't tell you why it's, why.
0: But I'm glad you hear it. When you approached that session... Had you a feeling beforehand of that that this was going to be the approach, or just sort of? No,
1: not not really. I knew what, I knew what, each of them w- was bringing, in terms of instrument and in terms of temperament. Mm-hmm. And I guess also Mark, since it was you know his his uh, his instigation that we put the session together. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess he also he's got a very very clear set of understandings, I think, mm-hmm. musical understandings. Mm-hmm. Big, big, uh, big spirit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, wonderful. You know, to think that he played with Thin Lizzy for a year and, or, you know, his story is... It's pretty wild. It, yeah, it makes me seem like a applauding, you know. Do, do
0: you stay in touch with him pretty frequently?
1: Well, as required, you know. Right. Yeah, we did Big Ears together so with just uh, this couple weeks ago well no March March oh right. yeah, yeah. Right. see yeah, yeah. the way it moves on and I've been home in between and back again so yeah um, and that was that was a very interesting uh
3: experience what did you guys went, do
1: well I I was set to play there with the Schlippenbach trio uh-huh. the, and there's a backstory to that as well it was originally supposed to be Parker Guy Litton but Barry decided he didn't want to go through the visa business and really, real hassle, yeah. really didn't want to come to America at the moment. Which he's made that decision several times before. Mm-hmm. And um okay, so Paul and I had done it once before in two thousand and three, Barry Barry um in in that situation it was he was worried about his mother's health and she she was he didn't want to be away uh while she was dying. And um, so we, we asked um, Alex to do it. We had to find somebody who was where the promoters wouldn't say, well, you know, this is no replacement for Barry Guy. Uh, mm-hmm. But nobody said that. They all said, Alex, that's fine. The only mm-hmm. problem is we don't have a really decent piano, but let, let us work on it and see the best we can do. Mm-hmm. That was a slight problem. So we've done it once before with uh, where it's but because of the visa issues, they Paul Lytton and, and Alex were coming as O2s on my O1, which may mean something to some of your touring. listeners. Yeah. Well, I but doubt, I doubt it very much. Right. Um, it made the visas for them slightly easier to get, but not easy enough for, for it to actually work, and, and Alex, in the end didn't come. But the other gig that I, I was uh, booked to do was, or that I negotiated with Ashley to do, was uh, a version of Transmap Plus, the thing with um, um, Matthew Wright. Mm-hmm. And I wanted Mark Nasif and a bass player called Adam, Adam Linson. Adam's great. Yeah. Do you like Adam? Total individual. Oh, okay. Yeah. And have you met him?
0: We've met in person a a couple of times. We've emailed. We we definitely want to play together at some point. He's just hard to get, you know, to pin down. Well,
1: there he is. He's in Edinburgh, and now he's a a father. Yeah. You you know, they've just got a
0: baby. But that solo record of his that came out on your label was like... Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Anyway, so that was the band. It was going to be me, Matthew... Uh, Mark and Adam sounds like a biblical story. But, um... <laughs> you guys all walk into a
0: bar, <laughs> <laughs> and
1: and then um, Ned said to me, "Matomi's going to come to Big Ears, and I don't, I can't, I can't make sense of coming to Big Ears with as just as a listener. Is there anything we can do?" And I said, "Yeah, you can play with this group. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. If you if you can talk Ashley into adding you in, that'd be lovely. Bass, clarinet, and shakuhachi. You know that the the thing that works so well with uh, the electroacoustic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, there we were with the, at that at that point. We're talking about a quintet, but we're also talking about a situation where Alex's visa never arrived in time. His passport never came back right. with the visa, so. It, he missed the flight. It was definitely uh, that he wasn't going to make Big Ears. There was still a chance that he might make Roulette and Chicago, but okay, that's for another story. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, what to do about the second gig? You know, I'd in uh, Big Ears, we actually shifted what was going to be the trio spot to the the new Transmap spot. Okay. And what were we going to do with Paul? How's Paul going to earn his keep there? You know. <laughs> and so I said, well, Paul is going to play with Transmap. He's got that's perfect because it gives symmetrical. I, I love that kind of thing of a drummer there and a drummer there. Sure. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I ordered gongs. That I don't often ask for things, but I would ordered gongs. Yeah. Uh, I ordered the a 40 inch I think oh gong and, yeah. a, and a 38 inch tam tam oh. and then I just said okay you've got the gong you've got the tam tam and um the 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 music played itself really yeah you know because of all the shared experiences of of uh, working yeah. in smaller groups and in the larger groups absolutely yeah and then the the only question was well I had two gigs what what are we going to do and um I sat down with Ashley's people, mm-hmm. and they said, that the only spot we can find you now is uh, before the first thing happens in the room where you were going to play with th- this band before we made the change. Right. So I said, but that's the room I really designed this band for. Yeah. And uh, they said, okay, but we'll, are you okay for a 10 o'clock in the morning concert? I said, 10 yes. o'clock in the morning? Yeah. I said, Yes. I'll do anything to play with this band in that room. And so we did two, two concerts with the same band, but in different rooms. Yeah. The sound people were a little bit grumpy because, you know... 10 o'clock they, in the morning. <laughs> they were required to be there from about 8.30, I think. Yeah. But we got everything going by 10, and it was... The the better of the two concerts was that one. I believe it. Not Not everyone... Knew it was even happening. It was such short noted stuff.
0: But so musically,
1: the crowd, the crowd was not what it would have been if if it had been the regular programming. Mm-hmm. People thought they'd seen that the day before. So right. But anyway, wh- why did I start on that? That was to do with Matt, with Mark, with Mark. We're talking yeah, of Mark, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so so throughout all, all of this, you know, th- some people can be difficult to work with. But yeah. Mark is not difficult to work with. He's very, very, very... And neither is Adam. None of those people are especially difficult to work with. Well, on that topic, I yeah. mean...
0: The trio of you, Barry Guy, and Paul Lytton... Yeah. How do you, how in the hell do you sustain an improvising trio for what must be 40 years
1: now? Well, we. it's actually the same answer to the Schliffenbach thing. We don't play it every month, right? We'd, we'd play occasionally. Yeah. And, okay, you don't forget what the group's about because you didn't play for a year. Sure. We, I mean, probably the next time I play with Alex will not be until December. That's your annual December yeah, run, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Right. And it works fine. It's like, uh, oh, where were we, you know? You just pick up where you left off. Yeah. And if somebody's brought some new stuff, fantastic. Don't quite know what to do with that, but here we are. When Mal- Alex started to play more of the Monk repertoire, oh. uh, that for a while that was a, a challenge. And then he started playing a couple of Eric Dolphy things. I had to, okay, am I going to play with these as though I know them? Am I going to pretend I know this line? or well, i better go home and I see the ones he's working on. I mm-hmm. let him play them solo now and I'll work on it. So the, Plain. that's a challenge with with Alex. Yeah. Which actually doesn't happen so much now. It's a phase that Alex worked sort of worked through. So that's that's it. You just have to know uh, what's happened
0: in the intervening period, you know.
3: Mhm. Mhm.
0: There was that record that you made the trio with Lytton and guy yeah. with Peter Yes, yes. And in Portugal. Yeah. Yeah. Peter's a special character.
1: Very. <laughs> but he can um look after himself. He can look
0: after yeah. himself.
1: <laughs> More or less any con well, I would say no, in any context. Yeah. yeah. He's quite a fine musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and he gets the you know, he knows, okay, this is about that. No problem. I can yeah. do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he's a master. He's like yeah. I mean Yeah. You know did um i don't know this is this is i'm this is a conversation i'm really happy has finally happened um oh i was are are you still releasing records with your label Uh, yeah
1: i'm you know martin davidson the 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 was the key to all of all of those things. I would never have been able to do the Adam Linson things, or the he handled Peter the administrative. He I handles think. everything except right. the decision about content, yeah, and appearance, yeah. And um, as we, as we often resorted to the expression, "It's your fucking label," and you know, or "It's my fucking label," you know, that that's it. In the end, he went along with decisions of mine in order to respect the fact that he, he had a label where mm-hmm. he could express his own ideas, mm-hmm. and uh, this is my label. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's there's no feeling like it when you have somebody that supports you to that point and that doesn't argue about, no, I'd, that's the wrong colour, or no, that's far too big, or that's far too small, talking about the graphics, or that's too loud, or that's too quiet. You No, this is a horrible mix. He never, never... Um, offered any resistance to final des- giving me the final decision. I and mean, that's what you need if yeah. you're working with somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's so rare. It is you know, rare. Somebody can can provide you with the the practical support that you need, but there's no charge there's no charge in terms of f- in return I'm I want a piece of the decision making. Mhm. You know, if I asked for his opinion, he would give it to me. Right. But but uh he didn't impose his his um, thinking on me, so it was a very, a very beautiful period of collaboration. But when he moved to live in Spain, we had a meeting before he left, and um, he and his um, partner, his former wife, he got back together with uh-huh. Madeline they said, well, we can work at long distance, and it's not a problem. So that, as the wind, is a, is a, an example of what we can do at long distance. Mm-hmm. It's technically true, but it's also true for me that at some point I, I have to make something that I'm more um, physically close to. Yeah? Yeah.
0: Well, it seems like in the last several years, you've been doing all your records at uh, St. Peter's in Whitstable.
1: Yes, a very special place.
0: It is a special uh, place.
1: But because with Whitstable, you also get Adam Skeeping, the recording engineer. Okay. Who is a lovely man, but that's coming to an end. Why? Because he feels his hearing is no longer up to the task. Hmm. He's he's in his eighties now, I guess. Oh, I didn't realize and that. Yeah, yeah, and he's a wonderful man, but uh, but but I, I very conscientious. I've gotten
0: the feeling that that. Uh, it, that St. Peter's has become a crucial part of of your
1: output. Yeah, I think there may be one more um, we did a final solo recording there to almost to celebrate Adam's decision. Recently. Yeah, it's not out yet. Okay. And it it may never come out. I don't know. It's it's there. Uh I'm still evaluating. You're <laughs> evaluating. That doesn't sound too pretentious, but no, it doesn't at all. You, you're I'm evaluating. I'm trying the music? to work out whether it adds anything to, to the corpus of solar work. Yeah. And meanwhile, I've found a a, a, a small, enticing studio in Ramsgate, which is a bit further down the coast. Okay. And there's uh it's run by a Portuguese guy. Uh, or oh, he's lived in England for a long time. I don't know. I think he still calls himself Portuguese. Okay. Uh, called Felipe Phil, Gomez. And, uh, but people call him Phil Gomes. <laughs> <So> he, <laughs> it's pretty he just, good. He just goes with it. Yeah. Call me Phil Gomes.
0: But with... with, with-
1: and he has a nice r- room for... In terms of resonance... I think now I've exploited everything that I can get. It sounds harsh, but everything that I can get from St. Peter's, I think I've I've taken.
0: So your your period I, with St. I, Peter's I, is coming to I, a close. I think so. Yeah. I
1: think so. I, I need a new new acoustic.
0: Yeah, and this studio offers
1: that. Is it a big live room? No, it's it's a live room, but it's not that big. Yeah, and it's right on the seafront. Uh, there's little marina there with yachts and things. And that adds something. It's, I go, oh, I'll show you a picture yeah. of it. It's on my phone. I think so.
0: Are you still excited about releasing records?
1: Uh, yeah, man. I <laughs> No. I'm, yeah. And that's why I want to get it right. I want yeah. to do something that makes sense of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Of the next phase. Yeah. And uh, there are people that I would like to involve more which is Matt Wright, mm-hmm. my son Sam, mm-hmm. who's a live sound engineer actually, but is very very good. He was a assistant engineer on the last session with Adam. Okay. And uh Yeah, I think I think in both ways um, the fact that Adam is Basically saying, look, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't hear. I I just can't hear. Mm -hmm. He can still do. He can do it by looking at the screen. He can still master. Mm -hmm. Um. But he can't hear. His ear's not there anymore. He can just see it on the screen. He can. I mean, it's amazing that the work that he's done. Mm Hmm. And there's something in the in the pipeline which uh, is from Japan, Uh, uh, and I think we. We could call it the electroacoustic quartet. It's with Joel Ryan, mm-hmm. Lawrence Gasserly, Paul Lytton, myself, and we did a tour in Japan, uh, God knows how many years ago. And Joel has been working on the recordings of one particular concert from Iwaki, okay. the Museum of Modern Art in Iwaki, which was a huge, like, triple-height space with massive natural... And we push the system as hard as it would go yeah and it, it's it's pretty amazing music yeah but joel joel is a pretty amazing perfectionist as well yeah and um the recordings were a mixture of ADATs and DATs and you know the time when uh, sure we were that in transition w- there were no uh, multi-track recorders on laptops so this is a while ago already this is yep. a while ago it's 2003 or something like that mm mm-hmm. Joel is just intermittently go- goes back and goes back and goes back. And I think we're on the point of that being ready. And uh, that'll be something. <laughs> but that'll come out on the Japanese, the, the promoters' label. Yeah. It's, uh, the guy that is called His, uh, Hisashi Tarouchi. Okay. And he took over from um, Kunio Nakamura at Jazz and Now. So technically, he owns Jazz and Now. Yeah, Which I did a couple of recordings for back when kunio Sam was still alive.
0: Yeah. I, you haven't done a solo record since Whitstable Solo, right?
1: No, I don't think so. That's yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's I, not that long ago.
0: Ten years. Nine years. Oh, God. <laughs> Maybe that's where the urgency is coming from. I just, I'll just say this, and we'll, you know, we should eat some dinner soon.
1: Okay, man, but but tell me what you think of the one, uh, the the one called "Lines Burnt in Light."
0: That's one of the best ones.
1: Correct answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> we can stay friends.
0: <laughs> that was. I'll tell you specifically. I have a very clear memory of yeah. bringing it back to the, the, the where this conversation was maybe an hour ago. Yeah. There was a period of time where I was doing a lot of playing with, uh, you know, Tom Blancart, who yes. plays with, with Peter? Oh,
1: I'm in mean, intimate Well, yeah. no, that gives the wrong impression. <laughs> I'm in um, regular contact with Tom because he's, uh, you know, he's doing a PhD. In Denmark? Yeah. Yeah. But you know the, the theme of the PhD.
0: No, I haven't talked to him in years.
1: Okay. Well, it, it's somehow about how would you play Evan Parker solo music on the double bass? And that's probably not the way it's couched in. Right. Because it's hyper-academic. I mean, he is... A, he's really... He's he really...
0: Going for he's it. He's going for it. Okay. Well, there but, was a period of time when he and I and a couple other musicians were yeah. playing several times a week, yeah. hours and hours at a time, yeah. Yeah. You know cut with beers and yeah. laughter and everything yeah. else. Yeah. And we listened to records. And I remember he put Lions Burton Light on and we were okay. listening to it and we were you know we were talking about the music yeah. and he just sort of exclaimed how could anyone in the world not hear this is it anything but objectively beautiful
1: <laughs> he's more measured than his direct um, dealings with me it's a little competitive okay <laughs> you know because he's read books which i not only have never read but no of no intention of ever reading <laughs> Especially, uh, you know, post-structuralist French.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. It gets a little wordy. Yeah. But I, I will tell you that as a listener, <laughs> what I heard you do last week at Alan's Loft and what I heard you do last year at the Zurcher Gallery solo, I want to hear a record of that. Okay, okay. And
1: okay. these, the, the guy, Phil Gomez, uh, um, has a, a colleague who comes in and he's somehow in commercial music business, Somehow. But uh I've forgotten his name for the moment, but the two of them they really they really make me feel at home. Yeah. And like they care. It's not to say that Adam Of course, didn't, of course, yeah, yeah. But Adam's very you know, he's a dry classical guy. That's his British. background. Yeah. 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 And these, these these they're not dry in that way. Dry? That's the last thing Adam is. I, I can't think of what I'm trying to say. Understated. Adam's very understated (laughs) and very, yeah, and doesn't offer opinions, really.
0: Right. It's not his
1: job, you know. Yeah, as it
0: can be difficult to read.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nate
0: Woolley's like that. I've never
1: thought of that comparison. But that's why Nate and Paul get on so well, I think. Yeah. I think so. There's something going on there, which is...
0: Listen, this has been fantastic. I think we did well here. Okay. I'm going to make us some dinner. But I I do need to tell you that your music has literally changed my life for the better. Thank you so much. It's given me so much, so much enrichment, and it it means the world to me in perpetuity. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Evan. All right. How did we do? That was my conversation with Evan Parker. Uh, I, I said it up top, I'll say it again His music means the world to me Evan means the world to me After we did this conversation uh, Evan and my wife and I had a good long meal Lots of laughter, lots of drinking And uh, it was definitely a highlight for me Evan Parker, the best If you want to find out more about Evan Go to evanparker.com Explore the world explore the world of Evan Parker there's a lot of music there and uh, if you don't already know that music I'd say you're in for a treat go to the 5049 website check it out check out some past episodes over 200 at this point point. and that's it uh, this piece that's playing behind me this is from the, that record we mentioned As the Wind I'm going to let it play, it play us out alright guys have a good week